Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture doesn't say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For the inheritance depends on the law, for sorry, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. That's quite a tricky passage, isn't it? (laughs) Um, We'll see what we can make of it in a moment. But before we do that, before we come to the passage, um, I I have learnt a few things believe it or not, um, in in recent days. And I wanted to share some of those things with you. So one fascinating fact I learned that I was sharing with with some friends uh, last night is that apparently it's illegal to be drunk in a pub. Did you know that? You can be drunk in church. That's not illegal. But it's illegal to be drunk in a pub. I just thought that was an interesting fact. Um... It is also an offence to be drunk and in charge of cattle in England and Wales. Now, we've got a couple of farmers here, so I'm just putting you on alert. We all know now, don't we, that it's illegal. It's an offence to be drunk and in charge of cattle. Is anyone planning to go to the Metropolitan Police District in the near future? No? Well, just in case you are, you need to know that it's an offence to beat or shake a carpet, rug or mat, except a doormat before eight o'clock in the morning, in a thoroughfare, and it's illegal to carry a plank, ladder, wheel, 
pole, cask, cask, placard, showboard, or hoop along the pavement. So if you are going, just need to have that in the back of your mind. We don't want to be caught up with these things, do we? Um, we all love our chips, don't we? We all love our chips. No person shall, in the course of a business, import into England potatoes which he knows or has reasonable cause to suspect are from Poland. <laughs> now, we share food with each other, don't we? So I'm just putting it out there that next time you go for a meal with someone, just discreetly ask, you know, where do these potatoes come from? <laughs> because we don't want to be accessories to crime, do we? Let's be honest about that. Um, West Wittering, who loves West Wittering? I love West Wittering. Not in the summer so much. <laughs> but should you go down to West Wittering this afternoon and should you find a beached whale, you must offer it to Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> you must not, under any circumstances, load it into the back of your car or camper van and try and smuggle it home. That is not legal. I'm sure you wouldn't do it, most of you, but again, I'm just putting you on alert. If you smell anything fishy in someone's car, just ask some discreet questions because that's not allowed. And then lastly, and this is a really important one, so if you take away nothing from this morning except this, it is illegal to handle a salmon in suspicious circumstances. <laughs> I need to say no more about that, do I? So, um, back to Galatians. Uh, what is the purpose of the law? Sometimes the point of the law, the purpose of the law, gets lost, doesn't it, out of context. We've got some strange very strange laws still in force in our country, which I'm sure are there for good reasons. But out of context, we might wonder, what is the point of that law? And at this point in the letter to the Galatians, I think Paul's readers are starting to ask that question. So what is the point of the law? You've said all these things about not trusting in the law and it's by faith. So what is the point of the law? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Paul's uh, gospel in a nutshell summary from Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we saw that three times Paul hammers his point home. Not by the works of the law. Not by the works of the law. Not by the works of the law. Really want us, he really wants us to get that point. And then in the, the verses following, uh, chapter 2 and 15 and 16, we see that... Uh, Trying to earn God's favor by keeping the law is illogical, it's contrary to experience, and it's contrary to the promises in Scripture. That's where we've got to so far in the book of Galatians. So what is the purpose of the law? And Paul starts to answer that question in our passage. But before he does so, he must first highlight the problem of the law. 
So verses 10 to 12 again. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. So a really tightly packed argument here by Paul. But what he's saying is this. He quotes three different Old Testament sources. One from Leviticus, I'm not taking them in order, but if you're looking at your church Bible, you can see in the footnotes where they come from. The first quote from Leviticus promises life to those who can keep the law of Moses. Well, that sounds like good news, isn't it? That's number one. Then a second quote from Deuteronomy shows that the threat of rejection from God hangs over everyone who doesn't keep everything that the law requires. That's the problem of the law. And in a third verse from Habakkuk, describes the righteous as those who live by faith. This was our memory verse, slightly different in the NIV. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So what Paul is arguing is that although in principle, keeping the law is a road to acceptance with God, in practice, it is a road that never reaches its destination because no one is able to stay on it. No one is able to keep the law perfectly. It is a problem road, so to speak. Those who stay on it never get to the end of it. They never reach God. It's a road that constantly reminds us that we're not going to make it. But this is where the gospel kicks in. Christ solves the problem of the law, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Paul is quoting another verse, again from Deuteronomy, to indicate that Christ has resolved the problem. I am unable to, to keep the law, but Jesus kept it perfectly. Jesus walked to the very end of that road without straying from it. So Paul says, if Jesus was hung on a pole or a tree or a cross, the word is not significant, then it can only mean that he was hung there for someone else's sin, not his own. Because to be hung on a pole or a tree or a cross didn't bring down judgment, it was a symbol of judgment. It was a symbol that a sign that someone had been judged to be in the wrong. So if Jesus, who kept the law perfectly, he must have taken the curse that was on us, who were unable to keep the law. Well, why did he do that? Why would he go through that for us? And Paul goes on, verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So Paul is reminding his readers again 
um, of the promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. He's mentioned this uh, in the previous passage in verse 8. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. It's the promise that God would bless the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by faith. What Abraham enjoyed, acceptance by God through faith, we too can enjoy because Jesus paid the penalty. A man was driving and he was just about to get home um, when a camera flashed him. And uh, he did what perhaps you've done if you've been in a similar situation. He immediately pulled his foot off the accelerator and looked at his dashboard and he thought, hmm, I I think I was driving within the the speed limit here. I think there might be a mistake with the camera. So he was very close to home. He had a bit of time on his hands. And so he he took the next left and went round again for a second pass. So this time he was really careful to ensure that he was definitely driving within the speed limit. And he drove past the camera again. And again it flashed him. He thought there is definitely a problem with this camera. So... um, he thought, I'm just going to go around once more and just, just, just for a laugh, um, you know, went really, really slowly, pulled a funny face at the camera, flashed him again. He thought, this is nonsense. And he was starting to feel a, bit, a little bit silly then. So he went around a few more times and each time, you know, different face on the camera um, to be flashed and then he got bored and he carried on home. And then a few days later, a whole pile of letters <laughs> dropped through his letterbox and onto his doormat. And there in front of him were a whole pile of penalty notices for not wearing a (laughs) seatbelt. Now, I'm sure you wouldn't be foolish enough to do what he did, but let's imagine for a moment that that was you and that you were suddenly faced with not one fine, but a whole host of fines and it was difficult for you to pay. And then imagine that a friend came along and said, don't worry about it, I'll pay those penalty notices for you. That is what Paul is describing here in the word redeemed. When he says in these two verses, Christ redeemed us, and then again, Christ redeemed us, that's what he means. Christ has paid the penalty that we should have paid. He's paid it on our behalf so that we don't have to pay it. So we're getting closer to why the law has been given. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer. Paul now wants to talk about the promise and the law. So he's talked about the problem of the law, that we can't make ourselves acceptable to God by keeping it. He's explained how Christ has solved that problem by keeping the law perfectly and taking the lawbreaker's punishment on himself. But he's now going on to describe the relationship of the law and the promise. And his point is this, that although the law is important, it is secondary to the promise when it comes to acceptance with God. So Paul says that God has made a promise to Abraham to bless the nations. The promise, he says, was made to Abraham and to his his descendant, Christ. And that this promise, the law, which was given hundreds of years after the promise, doesn't supersede the promise. Verse 17. What I mean is this. 
the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So it's like this. You write a will. Your will states that when you die, all of your stuff goes to so-and-so. You pass away. Sorry about that. But then um, your, your will and testament is in place. So it doesn't matter what happens now, that promise, that document, promising your stuff to someone else is in force. It cannot be overturned. It, your will and testament stand. The promise has priority. That's the argument that Paul is making here. So what is the point of the law? And now we get to the heart of the matter, verses 19 to 22. And to answer that question, before I quote Paul, I want to quote Stephen Arthur Pinker, professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, himself quoted by Richard Dawkins in the book, The God Delusion. And I'd like to place on public record my gratitude to Richard Dawkins for his help with this particular part of my message. As a young teenager in proudly peaceable Canada during the romantic 1960s, I was a true believer in anarchism. I laughed off my parents' argument that if the government ever laid down its arms, all hell would break loose. Our competing predictions were put to the test at 8 a.m. on October the 17th, 1969, when the Montreal police went on strike. By 11.20 a.m., the first bank was robbed. By noon, most downtown stores had closed because of looting. Within a few more hours, taxi drivers burned down the garage of a limousine service that competed with them for airport customers. A rooftop sniper killed a provincial police officer. Rioters broke into several hotels and restaurants, and a doctor slew a burglar in his suburban home. By the end of the day, six banks had been robbed, a hundred shops had been looted, 12 fires had been set, 40 carloads of storefront glass had been broken, and $3 million in property damage had been inflicted before city authorities had to call in the army and, of course, the Mounties to restore order. This decisive empirical test left my politics in tatters. What is the point of the law? The point of the law is to keep us in check before the promised redeemer would come. So verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party but God is one. Now, in a very tricky passage, this is a very tricky section, and it has been said that there are as many interpretations of this passage as there are years between the promise and the giving of the law. But one, I think, uh, reasonable interpretation of it is this, that the law given to the, given to the Jews came from God through angels and through the mediation of Moses. But mediation gives the impression of two parties striking a deal. But God wasn't striking a deal. God was the only one setting the terms. 
Whether that's the interpretation or not, the main point here is, I think, quite clear. And the key word for me is the word until. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So the law was only ever a temporary measure to keep us in check and to highlight, to highlight our need for faith in God alone. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, Paul says. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he's saying the law and the promise aren't in competition with each other. If we could make ourselves acceptable to God by keeping the law, then such a law would have been given to us. But that wasn't possible. No such law exists. That's why Christ has come, because only Christ can give us life. That is Paul's argument. And rather than give us life like Christ does, what the law does is show us our powerlessness. It shows us our slavery to doing and saying the things that really we don't want to do, we don't want to say, but we can't help ourselves from doing. So the law works with the promise by showing us that we actually need the promise. It's a bit like this. I want you to use your imagination again. I don't know if you've been to the Niagara Falls. Amazing place. But just, I'm sure you can picture them even if you haven't been there. Imagine you are on one side of the, of the Niagara Falls and you needed to get across to the other side. And imagine that the only way to get across was via a tightrope wire. And then to add to this implausible scenario, imagine that on your side, the ground is starting to move a little bit and cracks are starting to appear in the earth. You're looking at the tightrope. The tightrope is your one way of escape. And you kind of put your foot tentatively on it and you know that you haven't got a hope. You haven't got a hope of crossing the Niagara Falls on this tightrope that you're gonna fall in. So on the one hand, it kind of, it promises you a way of escape, but in another way, it's almost laughing at you because you know that you cannot make it across. But then someone comes along and this someone is a descendant of a stuntman called Charles Blondin, who in 1859 carried his manager, Harry Colcord, across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope by piggyback. And this man says to you, if you're willing to trust me, I will take you across. The law is like that tightrope. In one sense, it appears to promise the way of escape. But you know that you, you are unable to take advantage of that promise because you haven't got it in you to get all the way across without making a mistake. 
But then Christ comes along. And Christ is able to walk across that tightrope. And more than that, he is willing to offer to take you across that tightrope to the other side. All he asks of you is that you trust in him and you jump on his shoulders and he will take you across. That, in a nutshell, is the message of the gospel. We cannot get across on our own, but Christ offers us hope. He will take us across. Last couple of weeks, I've had a, a picture in my mind um, which I've tried to put on the screen like this, but essentially, there are two ways to live. And the first way to live is a way to gain God's, gain God's acceptance by keeping the law. And this is the way of all of the other major religions and some alternative variations of Christianity. It says that if you can just keep the law, if you can do enough good deeds, if you can pray enough, if you can read enough sacred scriptures, if you can give enough money to charity, if you can do this, if you can do that, if you can do enough of all of that, then you'll be accepted by God. But there are two problems with that. One is you can never do enough. You never get to the end of the line because you're always falling down. You're always making mistakes. You can never be good enough to get God's acceptance. And the second problem with it is that that behavior is ultimately driven by guilt. And so people who live like this carry around with them a burden that they can never quite make it. And it's a heavy burden, a heavy burden of trying to keep the law to make themselves good enough. That's one way to live. But the other way to live is to start from a place of acceptance. And this is the way that Paul is describing here in Galatians. It's to be accepted by God and from there, from that place of acceptance, from a place of gratitude, to do the same things that previously you were doing in order to get acceptance from God. So this person might do the same things as the previous person. They'll Read, read the Bible, they'll read the sacred scriptures, they'll pray, they'll give to charity, they'll, they'll do good things. But they're not doing it to get accepted by God, they're doing it out of acceptance from God. And that way is not the way of guilt and heaviness. That way is the way of freedom and life. There are only two ways to live. Ultimately, that is the choice that faces us. How does this second person, how, is, how are they able to do that? Well, it's because of what Christ has done. Christ has opened their eyes to the impossibility of keeping the law themselves. Christ has paid the penalty of the law for them, and they've seen that and accepted that. And Christ is the heir of this promise to Abraham that the righteous will live by faith. So as the song that we sang before I came up 
says so simply and so beautifully and so profoundly, in Christ alone, their hope is found. That is our only hope. That is our only hope. Not to live out of guilt, to try and get to God, but to, ex- to be accepted by God and then to live out of gratitude. And let me remind you as I just wind up now that this letter to Galatians is written to Christians. It has a, it has, has a dual lesson for us. So there's a lesson for anyone who's not yet got to that place of putting their trust in Christ. But that's just part of the lesson. The other lesson is because Paul is concerned that his Christian converts in Galatia have gone back to that other way of thinking. And he wants to remind them that that way does not work. It just forces a heavy burden for you to carry. He wants them to get back to the original place where they had come to, working out a life pleasing to God because they know that they have been accepted. So my question to you, believer or unbeliever this morning, is which way do you want to live? Which way are you going to live? Are you going to live out of guilt, trying to get accepted by God, or are you going to live from a place of acceptance and a place of gratitude?